0: Alright, let's uh, open an eye by, by trying to remember, I'm going to ask you to remember something. When was the first time that that the stars became real to you? And I don't mean like in an intellectual sense that you learned about stars, but when was the first time that the stars became really real and you, and you were captivated by their brilliance or by just the awe and the expanse of of, of the, the firmament and the, and the heavens and the, the majesty that's out there. Uh, I remember very clearly when that was for me. I was um, going into my ninth grade year in Duncan, uh, at Duncan High School in Duncan, Oklahoma. And, wh- wait, wait, what? Who do we got? It. Oh, Elise, yeah, truth. Um, and my family, we had gone on a vacation to Colorado, and one of the beautiful things about Colorado amidst all the scenery is that it gets dark at night. Right, There aren't, it's more sporadic, uh, cities are more sporadic, and so there just aren't as many lights. And so I remember very clearly sitting outside one night in a hot tub, and I had uh, the 1990s version of Beats on, and they were not near as cool, but they were every bit as big. And I was sitting in the hot tub with this really terrible Christian music song on repeat, and I remember looking up and just simply being overwhelmed. And tonight, what I want to tell you about this passage is that in order for the gospel, the good news, and the hope, and the majesty of this message that's coming, in order for that to stand out in all of its brilliance, the Apostle Paul is going to paint a dark background. And he's going to do that tonight and next week before he starts turning the corner to show just how good the good news is, But listen, in order to appreciate the brightness and the joy and the hope of the gospel of Jesus, we have to understand just how dark the world is. And so that's going to start tonight. I just don't want to pull any punches on you. I'm just telling you where we're going. It's going to be dark tonight and next week. But even in this darkness, we're going to talk about the hope of the gospel and the hints of it that we have. So if you'll look right there, we're going to read from Romans uh, 1. Kind of pick up a little bit where we where we started last week. I'm going to reread 16 and 17, then we'll go through the end of the chapter. Before I do that, let me pray for us. Then we'll get going. Father, we do ask that you would be with us now as we read your word, and then as we consider it and talk about it for a few minutes. Um, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and um, calm my anxious heart. I pray that you would come and calm. Uh, the anxious hearts in this room. Lord, those of us who are hurting, I pray that you would uh, help this message to be a balm of good news. I pray for those of us who uh, are doing great. I pray that you would challenge us and encourage us. Lord, be for us what we need tonight. We pray and ask in Jesus' name Amen. So let's read this together. This is God's Word. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed by faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. This is God's word, and it's a hard word tonight. No doubt, one of the first things you notice in this passage, because it's right off the bat in verse 18, is this. That God is angry. God's wrath is a thing in the Bible. Um, We wish that wasn't the case. right? We we prefer to think of God, and it would be much easier... To think about God as a a Santa Claus type being who's kind of always smiling and cheerful and he gives us good things when we're good and even when we're bad. He like still kind of shows us grace and gives us some things and um, that's just a much more palatable view of God. But it is decidedly not the picture of God that we have to us in scripture. And since it's not, we have to look and figure out what we do with this God. This story and this account from the Apostle Paul as he's building this case of what the gospel is reads a lot more like reality and a little less like a Christmas story. And here's the reality that Paul paints for us. That mankind knows God and that they reject Him. That mankind knows God and they reject Him. And as you'll see right there in your handouts, those are our two points tonight. So let's look at the first one. Knowledge of God that we have a knowledge of God. Now, imagine with me for just a moment that you are Jared Cozart, one of the world's foremost and accomplished artists. You paint beautifully. You sculpt beautifully. You just do beautiful things. You live beautifully. You're a beautiful person inside and out. And imagine then that... uh, excuse me, that that a gallery has offered to host all of your beautiful things, and they're throwing a Jared Cozart viewing. Not for him, you know, ethereal Jared, but um, you know, all of his things are going to be there on display. And uh, Jared signs his art very clearly. It just says Jared Cozart right on the corner. And so, here's the gallery, you're there, you're, you're walking around, and you are Jared Cozart, so you're walking around, and And you're talking to people and kind of milling around, but you're also listening to people. And one of the really curious things that you hear people saying are things like this. Wow, this stuff is so beautiful. It's it's overwhelming. I just can't take in all of its beauty. And you begin to kind of perk up a little and listen for more. And they say, I just can't remember who did this. I can't remember who painted it. Like, oh, that doesn't matter. Yeah, you're right, it doesn't matter. And with that, your heart sinks a little bit. right? Because the show is about you. You're the artist on display. All of your works are on display. You've signed them. I mean, all they would have to do is look in the bottom right corner and they see Jared Cozart. But the people fail to acknowledge what is right in front of them. In the first few verses right there, 18 through 21, the Apostle Paul is making the case that God is angry because, as he says... He has made Himself clearly known in His creation. He's made Himself clearly known and people have rejected Him. Now, I say clearly known very very intentionally, and I don't say fully known. God has made Himself clearly known, but not fully known in the creation. If you go right there in 19 and 20, it says that uh, God made Himself plain to us through His eternal power and divine nature. And what He's saying is that anybody can look out at the world and get a real sense that there is a powerful, divine, creative being behind this world. And that God, as it were, like a great artist, a great creator, which He is has put an indelible mark on His creation. He's signed it through and through in its complexity, its intricacy, its constancy, its personality. All of these things, Paul is saying, in essence, these evidence God, and man knows that. We know it. We may try and call it something else. We may try and and, and theorize it differently differently, But at a very base level, the Apostle Paul is making the case that man knows God. And I know that some of you right now really struggle with that idea. You may struggle with it from a philosophical angle, you may struggle with it from uh, a scientific angle, you may struggle with it from an experiential angle. And I'm not going to minimize those struggles and those questions at all. In fact, as I always say, and I really do mean it, let's talk. I'm not going to shame you for your questions. I want to I engage with you in that. And if I don't know the answer, which is often, um, I'll tell you as much. Um, but if you have legitimate questions along those lines, please let's talk. But let me say this. That the reason that there is a, a real knowledge of God that sometimes and often is uh, suppressed or hidden, especially in the academic world, and I'm not saying particularly at TU, there's some really great professors here. Um, but the reason this gets suppressed and hidden in academia is for a whole host of reasons. There's, all, there's a lot of bias built into the system. Um, there is a lot, of, uh, a lot of reasons, but I'll just mention one. And it, this is universal for everyone, not just people in academia. That at a very base level, the moment you start to acknowledge that there is God, a creator of this world, then at that very moment, you owe your existence to him. You are living in His world. You are breathing His air. You are enjoying His creation. You're enjoying His people. You owe your existence to Him. And I'm going to tell you guys, people hate that. Because with that comes obligation. Morally, kind of existentially, just in the way that we live and move and have our being in this world. We owe our existence to Him and people hate that. And let me take it a step further. I hate that. And you hate that from time to time. You push back on the idea that there are moral absolutes that are the same for all time and people and cultures. We want to think that no, like 2016 we've got our own things and there's moral relativism and look how we've progressed to this and it's so wonderful. Look... There are awful and unspeakable things that are done to children and have been done since the beginning of humanity that are always and forever wrong, just to use one example. There are things which are just wrong. We hate the idea that there is this known knowledge of God. God has made himself known in creation that Paul goes on to say that mankind has rejected that. He says in verse 18, we suppress that truth or we reject that knowledge. We reject God. And that's our second point tonight. And we're going to spend a bit more time here. We reject God. And I'm going to suggest that there are kind of three headings of rejection that Paul talks about. This is the darkness of this. Knowledge is great. Rejection, not great. This is where it turns darker. And so the first way that we view this is is through the act of rejecting God. Secondly, we're going to see the reason for rejecting God. And thirdly, the consequence of rejecting God. So, so the act of rejecting God, what does it look like to reject God as Paul is laying out this case? First, in verse 18, it says that rejecting God looks like just suppressing that knowledge. And the picture he's giving through this word suppressing, and I've used this illustration before if you're new, I'll probably use it again, is the idea of imagine being in a swimming pool and there's a beach ball or a volleyball or something in there and you're trying to hold it under the water and just playing around. Well, that ball is doing everything in its power to come back to the surface. And so it's kind of awkward to hold it underwater because it's got a real force in there that air does not want to be suppressed. It's trying to come up. And that's the idea here that Paul is saying that in unrighteousness we are suppressing the truth that truth that mankind knows about God. We're trying to hold it in and it is trying to come out. So rejection of God looks like suppressing truth. Secondly, verse, eight, verse 21, it looks like not honoring Him or giving thanks to Him. And that's what I touched on. It, if there is a, a creator God, then we're living in His world and we ought to give thanks to Him. Thank you that the mix of oxygen that I breathe has just em- enough of all of those things that some of you all know what it is. It has just enough of all of those good things to where I'm not choking every time I walk outside. Okay, we don't acknowledge Him or give thanks to Him. And again in verse 21, rejecting God looks like becoming futile in your mind. Literally, uh, that, that phrase futile means using your mind worthlessly. And I think what Paul's getting at is video games. I think, um, using your mind worthlessly, maybe like TMZ online, I I don't know, the translation's hard, but, you know, just using your mind unprofitably. Kidding, kidding, kind of. Um, And then in verse 22 and 23, rejecting God looks like this. It's the great truth exchange. Paul says that claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What in the world does that mean? Well, for people who were part of the uh, who were receiving this letter originally in this Roman culture, um, there were literally uh, statues and, and all kinds of things that they had built and that they would worship, that they would ascribe deity to these. Idols, these images, and they would worship them. And they took the form of of animals and of people and of kind of gods. We've all seen just Roman statues. They're they're huge and they're prevalent. They They ascribed deity and they would worship these things. Now, we, we have progressed, haven't we? We don't do things like that. But we really are crushed when she doesn't text us back that quickly. Or doesn't use as many emojis as she used to. We may not bow down to the animal, but we bow down to people. Or what about, uh, what about when the company or the grad school says no, and you're crushed? And like You are flattened, and you feel all of your affection, you feel all of the life just kind of drain out of your body. We don't worship statues of animals, but we worship what companies think about us. Or what about when you aren't getting the social kind of invites or social calendars not looking like you hoped it would or maybe the fraternity or sorority you wanted didn't give you a bid and you felt despair? Yes, we don't, we don't worship the bust of that demigod in, in Roman culture, but we really, do, we really do kind of worship approval and wanting people to like us. Or when you realize you're not going to get the GPA you thought you'd have, you can't sleep. Look, y'all, this is what Paul's talking about. It looks a certain way for the Roman people and it looks a certain way for us. We are exchanging the right worship of God, living our life in reference to Him, for living our life in reference for anything else. And what Paul's saying by kind of giving that list of things is saying... The anything else that you try and give your life to and look to it to give you life in return is going to ultimately kill you. Whether that's physically, probably not. It's going to suck the life out of you. Only a right worship and living your life in reference to God is going to give you life. Everything else will take it from you. That's what Paul's saying. So why do we do it? Why do we do that? The reason for rejecting God and the key to understanding why Adam and Eve as our first parents and how, why every single one of us since then would do this is at the end of verse 18. And Paul says, Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We suppress that knowledge of God because there is something at work inside of us. And that something is unrighteousness. So what, Brent, is unrighteousness? Glad you asked. Paul is going to use this word and variations of it all the time. All the time. I wanted to put up a screenshot of like a, the, the Greek text here and highlight this word in red. Actually, it was going to, it was going to take too long. It is like, it's throughout the book of Romans, the, the root word here for unrighteousness, which is this little phrase, dikai, and it just means Right. Right. And it's the root word of, of the word justice, justness, justify, not justness, righteousness, justify, righteous, anything that kind of has to do with this legal language of being right. This is a big deal in Paul's letter. So what does it mean? What does it mean? Let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't just mean good. So righteous doesn't mean good only. And therefore, unrighteous doesn't just mean bad in some moral sense. To say to kind of to say that righteous and unrighteousness is just like good or bad, whether morally or, or something, would be like saying that Cheesecake Factory has a big menu. It's not a big menu, it's overwhelming. It's the biggest menu ever, ever. It big just is not the right word to describe that menu. Good and bad are not the right words to use with righteousness and unrighteousness. A better word is, is right there in it. The word right. Right. And so here's what Paul's saying righteousness and unrighteousness means. That rather than making some sort of moral declaration about unrighteousness, what Paul is saying, that that's not so much a statement of moral condition as it is of spiritual condition. So in verse 18, when Paul says we suppress the truth in unrighteousness, he's saying That there's something fundamentally unright at the deepest part of who we are in our heart. And from that place of not-rightness, we then act out. So something is not right within us, and we act out on that. Now, what is not right is that we have been severed from our relationship with God. We have said, beginning with Adam and Eve in the garden... The serpent came and tempted and said, look, you don't, you don't have to worship God. You can be like God. Essentially what he was saying is, you can be your own God. You can do whatever you want. And Adam and Eve said, yes. And every one of us in so many ways says yes. And that causes the unrightness in the very core of our being. And from that place, we go and do unright things. And the primary way that our rejection of God plays out in our lives is that we just do what we want to do. We don't don't live our lives in reference to God. We don't care what He thinks. But that has consequences. And that comes right here uh, thirdly. And I want you to notice the phrase, God gave them up, in verses 22, 26, and 28. And that phrase is so important in this passage. What does it mean that God gave them up? God's wrath against man's unrighteousness is that He simply gave them up to do what they wanted to do. When it says that God gave them up, the picture is that He had been restraining us and He just like lifts His hand and we just go and do what naturally our hearts wanted to do from that place of unrightness. Think of like this. Think of a dam on a big body of water, whether you've been to Lake Mead out in Las Vegas or some other big body of water, lake or river otherwise. The function of a dam is that it, it holds back water. It keeps it from being released and going downstream or whatever, and, and, right, and they've learned how to make that into power and all kinds of great uses. But a dam holds back water. And right, it'll let out some in a healthy way to keep everything downstream alive and all that. But only in the most serious and extreme circumstances do the engineers like really lift the floodgates and just let the water go. Because when that happens, destruction is caused downstream. And what Paul's saying is that when God gives them up, His wrath is Him giving them up. He's removing His hands and just letting us do what we want to do. Let me, get, let me begin right there. Let, let me go back. And that idea of God's wrath just giving us over to do what we want to do, y'all, that's the most terrifying news in the world. We think that God's wrath, maybe you thought about, is like Him coming with huge hailstones and fireballs and you know, earthquakes and all this stuff. And it's just like this post-apocalyptic calamity. But it actually is more like God just stepping back and saying, okay, I guess if you want to do that, you can do that. And that's the worst thing that could happen to us. So now let me begin with the most controversial section section of this, which is controversial for a lot of wrong reasons. And it concerns the references here to homosexuality. Paul says in this chapter that part of the implications of God stepping back in His wrath is that our desires have moved in directions that are contrary to nature, contrary to His design. And he says that homosexual behavior is one way that that is illustrated. Now, from the beginning of the Bible to the end it is pretty clear that god's intention and design for sexuality is between a man and a woman in the context of marriage and throughout the bible anything that stands outside of those bounds is condemned is said that is not right that is that is unnatural that is against the way god created things not surprisingly then before he even mentions the homosexual sex we see that paul highlights any, any sort of sexual action outside of marriage. Look down right there in verse 24. He starts talking about any sort of unnatural lust. Epithumia is that word. It means over-desire. It is good to have a right desire uh, for someone. But a lust is an over-desire. You desire and you take what you shouldn't have and what is not yours. And so there's, there's a condemning of all of this, which no doubt includes all sorts of sexual sin. Unmarried men with unmarried women, married men with, with married right in, in adulterous relationships. Everything is included here. I would argue that this includes not just actions, but even thoughts. Jesus goes on to say this, that if you even have a lustful thought towards someone, you've committed adultery in your heart. Y'all... You know, the Bible gives a pretty clear picture about what's natural and Paul's saying, a picture of God's wrath is just letting us do what we want to do and this is a picture of what we want to do. One scholar says it like this, the focus here on sexual sin should not surprise us. If God made humankind in His own image, male and female, then humankind's rejection is bound to lead to the undermining of those primary relationships. Okay. Okay. I'm going, to tell, I'm going to be very clear. I'm going to tell you five things that this is and is not saying. First, right here. This passage is not... The whole passage we've read is not about homosexuality. It's not. That is not the primary thrust of this passage. It is about the exchanging of God's glory in His worship for worshiping something else. The exchanging of God's truth for something else. So, like, I'm not going to spend... More time on it tonight. It doesn't really come up throughout the rest of the book of Romans. I'm not going to go there. We talked about it last fall at length if you want to listen on the podcast. I've actually made about 40 copies of an article that's kind of an academic but pastoral article that gets into what this passage means. Um, But the primary thrust of this is not homosexuality. It's just not. But I do want to talk about that with you if you have questions. I'm not trying to just say, hey, go let the article do its job. I'll gladly talk to you about this. Whether that's something you're struggling with, whether it's just something that um, you kind of have questions about the Bible's view on this, I'm not shying away from that. Um, It's just not the primary thrust. Secondly, this passage is not addressing same-sex attraction as much as it is homosexual practice in these verses right here. Um, I know that some of you guys uh, struggle with same-sex attraction. I do. I know that. You've shared that with me, and and I've held that close. Um, And that's just not, kind of categorically, not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about giving in to that. Thirdly, though Paul uses uh, homosexual practice to illustrate about how we move away from God, he is not setting up an argument that somehow homosexual activity and practice is worse than other things, he's not. It is not worse. Look at the list right there in front of you. Y'all, there are all kinds of other things. And the things that follow it are not flowing from it. They are like two paragraphs that are equal. So there's the one about the homosexual stuff and there's all the other things. And so Paul's saying, look, these are all flowing from that same sort of rebellion against God and rejection of him. So, murder, ruthless, treating of others, heartlessness, envy, lying, disobeying parents, boasting, it's all in there. Fourthly, God's wrath is not coming down because of all the things listed here. You have to hear me say that. God's wrath is not coming down because of all these things. God's wrath is the fact that these things exist. Remember, it's Him lifting His hands and saying... Okay, go treat your parents how you want to treat them. Go do with your body what you want to do with your body. Go lie. Go live and be consumed by envy and hatred. And that will ultimately dehumanize you. It will, it will kill you from the inside out. So God's, not, God's wrath is not, I'm so mad because of all these things you've done. Remember, God's wrath is against suppression of truth. Lastly, we're all in this list somewhere. We are all in this list. Last week, right here, I stood up here and said, look, the gospel is for everyone. Because everyone needs the gospel. The darkness of this passage touches on every one of our hearts. There's nobody that is held up on a pedestal so that we can say, ooh, you're worse than this person. It's not it. This passage levels us all and says we all have a great need because we all have a darkened heart. And then Roman, Romans one ends right there. Suddenly, he ends by saying, I, "I'm giving you up to do what you, excuse me, what you naturally want to do." But this isn't the last time that Paul talks about giving up in the book of Romans. At the end, actually, in fact, in Romans 8, the end of where we're going to end this semester, in verses 31 and 32, the Apostle Paul says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all... How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Here's what Paul's saying. By chapter 8, at that point he has spent many chapters talking about the glory and the brightness of the gospel. With the relief of this dark part. But he said, here's how good the good news is. And he gets to this point and says, can you believe this? If God is for us, what do we have to fear? Who can be against us? And then he says, he who gave him up for us all, God gave Jesus up for us. He gave us up to do what we want to do. And at the end, there's a greater exchange. That God gives up his own son for us. Look, y'all, the only way to escape ultimately being given over by God to do what you want to do forever is to believe that God gave up the one for you. And the only way to escape becoming an object of wrath and staying an object of wrath forever is by believing that God became an object of wrath to save you. We all make terrible exchanges. Every day. Every year. Now and for the rest of your life. But the worst part of the most terrible exchange in history happened at the cross of Jesus to Him. Think about this. At the cross, we see God's wrath fully poured out. And not surprisingly, we hear Jesus say this from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or as our kid's storybook Bible says, Daddy, where are you? Look, y'all, at the cross, Jesus, God gave him over. And there was separation there. So that at the cross, in that place where God's wrath was most fully on display, at that very same place, God's love is most fully on display. Consider that the Creator entered the creation so that he might die for it and save it. Consider that the Creator who deserved worship from His creation humbled Himself, entered into it, died for it, so that He might deliver it. That's what happens in the Gospel. It is dark. The reality is that we have darkened hearts, but the bright, shining hope in the midst of that is that God enters the story and is given over in the person of His Son to save you, to deliver you. Can you trust Him tonight? Can you find your life in the exchange that Jesus had of His at the cross? That's the Gospel. That's what's offered in it tonight and every night. Let's pray together.